comfort the weeping mothers, the lost fathers, and the forsaken children, and let them come quickly, for a voice of crying is heard out of Zion, for we are greatly confused, for death has come into our ghettos to cut off the young men and women from the streets of Philadelphia, New York, L.A., Georgia, Ohio, Florida, Mississippi, and throughout America, South America, the Caribbean islands, Africa, Asia, and all over the world. So return unto me, thus saith Yah, and I will return unto you, O my people. and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4.6 states my people are destroyed from the lack of knowledge. But we as a people can turn this around. Proverbs 4.7 states wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore get wisdom. With all thy getting, get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot, Brother Reggie, and Brother Ralph. The number to reach us to join the conversation is 215- 
That's 215-253-7263. The listen-only line, if you don't have computer access, access to a smartphone, iPad, or anything of that nature, is 559-726-1300. That's 559-726-1300. And the access code is 958590-POUND. Again, that access code is 958590 and pound. We're streaming live on TuneIn. If you have the TuneIn app on your smartphone, your iPad, things of that nature, just go to the uh, TuneIn directory and in the search engine type in time for an awakening. And you can hear it, listen, uh, hear it live on your iPhone, iPad, or in your desktop. Or you can go to Black www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and hit that green button to listen live. Drop us an email at time for an awakening at gmail.com. That's time for an awakening at gmail.com. We also uh, have a Facebook fan page for time for an awakening. Just go to the search engine and type in Time for an Awakening. There you always see interesting content on Facebook being posted daily by Brother Edge. And before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's Time for an Awakening radio program on Facebook. Tonight, uh, we're scheduled to have two special guests, author, lecturer, and activist. Dr. Ray, Way- Ray Winbush will be joining us, the director of Institute of Urban Research at Morgan State University will be joining us in the first hour. It'll be an interesting discussion. In the second hour, we'll be joined by Ezra Al-Haron, adjunct professor of political science at Delaware State University. And we'll be right back to get things started after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and and our enemies. (laughs) Everybody is here. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before you-
your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening. Sundays, 7 p.m., with your hosts, Elliot and Reggie. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. And before we open up the program this evening, good evening to Brother Reg and Brother Ralph. Brother Reg, is there any community announcements uh, going on out there that uh, need to be announced? Yes. Uh, there's going to be a meeting, uh, the African American. Freedom of Reconstruction League will be having a meeting Saturday, January 31st, 2015 uh, by popular demand activist, humanitarian, culture, Grio, Maisha Ngoza. That's our sister, Maisha, will treat us to pictures and information on a recent trip to Brazil. We often watch documentaries and read articles from the perspective of the dominant culture. However, we have our own traveler and historian in the community who has visited Brazil and will give us an account of Brazilian culture and history from an African-centered view. Brazil has the second largest population of African peoples in the world, and they share a similar history of struggle from enslavement as we do in the United States. Because of this connection, a traveler like Sister Maisha has an affinity with the people's plight and religious practices. Therefore, we will get a narrative that is through uh, thorough, untainted analysis of the country and its African descendants. Please be sure to hear this presentation and bring friends and family. The date, once again, is Saturday, January 31st, 2015. Time, 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. Location, Joseph Coleman Library, 68 West Shelton Avenue between Germantown Avenue and Green Street, Philadelphia, PA, 19144. Admission is free to the public. For more information, please call 215-474-3576. Two one five four seven four three five seven seven. Please come out and support the African American Freedom and Re- Reconstruction League in this initiative. Thank you, Brother Reg. And uh, tonight, our first guest and is scheduled to have a special guest with us, and it's an honor for him to be with us as author, lecturer, and activist. Dr. Ray Winbush is the director of the Institute of Urban Research at Morgan State University and is also a critically acclaimed author, The Warrior Method, uh, Belinda's Petition, and Should America Pay? Slavery and the Raging Debate on Reparations. Dr. Winterbus is joining us this evening to talk about the upcoming Reparations Summit to be held in New York in April, and a uh, discussion, among other things, go- moving forward into the year 2015. Dr. Winbush. Hey, how you doing, Brother Elliot? <laughs> how are you, sir? I'm doing fine. How are you? It's been a while since we talked to you. You joined the program yeah. with Brother Reg and Brother Ralph. How you doing, my brother? Hey, Brother Ray, Brother Ralph. How's it going? Good. Well, well. I really enjoy your post on your uh, Facebook page. Just want to let you know that. They get me in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I've been kicked off of that thing twice, so I'm going for a third one. You know? uh, Brother Wimbush, listen, before we... Um, talk about the uh, upcoming reparation summit 
I know that's been uh, mm-hmm. part of your life's work for a number of years now. I just want to um, do a little recap uh, on some of the things that had been uh, uh, challenges our people faced in 2014 and moving into 2015. And I want to start mm-hmm. out by saying and get your opinion on it. I think that moving into 2015, our young people, because uh, they had been dumped on, you know, they always being dumped on by popular media and uh, and, and white media, but and some of our people uh, had spoken badly about our own young people. But I, I'm proud and hope that moving forward, the young people keep agitating, keep speaking out, and don't let other folks yeah. take over uh, the uh, movement behind these police shootings because we can see signs of other folks trying to incorporate and take over a grassroots movement that had been started by our young people. Yeah. And and I, before I get your opinion on that, I know that you're from Cleveland. And right. uh, one of the things that led to a lot of these protests is the, uh, the, the police murder of, uh, of black folks. I don't care whether they're men, women or children in Cleveland. You had, uh, young Tamir Rice, the 12 year old boy that was murdered mm-hmm. by a cop. But I want to read something to you and get your opinion not only on the movement, but what's going on as far as uh, these police shootings. And I want to read this because it's, it's problematic to what we're dealing with. And this is from a published report uh, from a Cleveland newspaper. It says uh, the Cleveland officer who shot and killed 12 year old Tamir Rice. Uh, has issues with handling guns during his brief tenure as a suburban, at a suburban police department. Uh, according to a published report on November 29, 2012, the letter uh, contained says that uh, Tim Lohman, a uh, personnel file from the Independence Police Department, says that during his firearms qualification training, he was distracted and weepy. He could not follow simple instructions and could not communicate his thoughts clearly, nor his recollections, and his handgun performance was dismal, according to the letter written by Deputy Chief Jim Pollock of the Independence Police Department. The letter recommended that the department part ways with Loman, who went on to become a police department in Cleveland, a police officer, I'm sorry, in Cleveland. I do not believe, uh, nor do I uh, suspect that training will be able to change or correct his deficiencies, said Pollock. So we see that an officer or a a potential police officer that that, uh, went for a police academy in another town in Ohio, Mm -hmm. uh, failed miserably, and came to Cleveland and got on the police force. Now, Cleveland tries to say that they were unaware of these uh, personnel issues dealing with this this guy and uh you see he's trigger happy because when he pulled up on a 12 year old child in less than 22 seconds the child was dead uh, this About is two seconds okay okay we can see yeah. that this is problematic talk about not only your reflections of our young people in their movement but this uh this wanton police murder of our children i want you to reflect on that before i add some other things to the conversation well, I, I think it's very difficult for African people in general to accept the fact that people classified as white 
as Neely Fuller said, and it's a difficult thing almost to say, but I think it's true. He said, if you know that most white people hate black people, if you know this fact, there is little else you need to know. So when it comes to policing and the killing of our children, as I've been saying over the past few months, it's not just the killing of our children, it's the killing of us in general around the planet. Um, we've been doing some research on this whole police stuff in the, since Michael Brown at the Institute here at Morgan. And one of the things that we found is it was very disturbing with my researchers in our department. We found out that in most cases, like here in Baltimore, only 50% of the new recruits to the academy are from Baltimore. Uh, new York police officers, 40% of them are not from New York. And But you can go to Philadelphia, Chicago, the same thing. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to know why is it that police officers... Now, 30, 40 years ago, police recruits came from the community that they lived in. And what we have found is that the reason why, and there's actual research to show this, police no longer want to live in the communities uh, that they work in because they're afraid of retaliation. With the increased militarization of police forces, they know that they can be retaliated against much easier. So this idea, like when I grew up in Cleveland back in the 60s and stuff, we knew the cops lived in our community, or they lived, like, at least in the city. These cops are not living any place like that. So they have, they can distance themselves from their victims. The fact, there is this black-white encounter. Norm Stampler says this in his book. He's a white former uh, police chief of Seattle. He says very clearly that white cops are taught to fear black people. I got a call on Thursday of this past week, and a guy anonymously he told he told me he was a police officer, and he and he sounded clearly like he was white. Mm -hmm. He said, and he told me he was from Virginia. And, you know, he said that would you please tell them to stop making the targets that we practice on in the academy and after we become police officers black. Now, you know, as a psychologist, I, I never thought of that, that they have black targets as opposed to white targets. They have black targets. And then we started looking at that. And sure enough, most departments police that way. So you've got a witch's brew of police that don't live in the community. The, the whole unconscious fear of black people, particularly black men, that police officers are trained to fear. And then the whole issue of being in a system of white supremacy. And all of that combines to some of the deaths that we've seen uh, about police, you know, throughout this nation. You know, uh, kind of ironic that you mentioned and quoted Neely Fuller. Uh, Brother Ralph, one of our co-hosts, always talks about, you know, he, he hears a, a lot of uh, talk shows and the people talk about weeding the bad cops off the force. But, uh, uh like Brother Ralph mentions, it's not about weeding bad cops off the force. It's the outright hatred of black people by a lot of these white officers. Exactly, exactly. 
And, and, and that's why I've, I've had, you know, I've kind of had mixed emotions, and they were kind of confirmed the other a couple of weeks ago I was reading the final call. And, you know, the, the slogan, I guess, that has typified this whole movement is the slogan, Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And in the final call, the editor said, maybe we should say Black Lives Should Matter. Because if black lives really matter, they wouldn't be killing us like this. They should matter, of course. And that's why I've had mixed emotions about that phrase, black lives matter, because I don't think, and it's hard for people, black folks, to accept that in all history testifies with it, you know, that white people do not like black folks. And I'm not saying all white folks, you know, or anything like that, but the vast majority have very, they're reserved about their attitudes towards white. And I've had white people tell me this. I've had white people tell me that. So we just don't want to accept it because we just think, you know, all of us, you know, we all, it's not one race, there's only one race, the human race, and all this crap like this. But it's really, we have to really study scientifically the impacts of white supremacy, not only on African people, but on white people, too. Exactly. You, uh, you know, <clears throat> I've seen some studies there that talk about, because you see a lot a lot now coming out, some of the agendas of some of the young people, uh, Philadelphia and others that uh, protests have been conducted by young people, talk about the need for body cameras yeah. or body recorders on these police and some studies show that uh, using these cameras helps reduce uh, police uh, violence or violence against uh, members of the black community or people in general. But you see a lot of cities, and Philadelphia is no exception, that has a black mayor, a black police commissioner, a black city council, black fire chief, all the black officials, it's something strange that either you see black officials against uh, body cameras or don't say anything about it. Talk about the fear of black elected officials who supposed to represent their communities and see their communities being abused, not saying anything on this issue. Well, they, they aren't, and, and we know they aren't. I mean, you, you know, Brother Elliot, I think what happened in the 60s you know, I don't know how old you are, but I remember, I'm from Cleveland, I remember when Carl Stokes was elected, he was the first mayor of a major metropolitan city in this country. We, black folk want transformational leadership in their elected officials. Black folk, I'm talking about the masses of black people want people who are elected to public office to change systems. And so back in the day, it was like that. Marion Barry in D.C., Carl Stokes in Cleveland, Maynard Jackson and Marion Berry combined probably produced very, at least two or three dozen uh, black millionaires. Now we see black politicians that are more conformist. You know, it's the, with now the, the post-racial politician, Anthony Williams in D.C., Cory Booker up in New Jersey. Um, I mean, you could name them on and on. And these politicians really part of the system that we wanted transformed. Barack Obama, I hate to go all the way to the top, but Barack Obama. And so a lot of black folks now, 
you know, with regards to the president, I don't want this to be a Obama bashing situation or anything, but we're most black folk quietly will say, you know, I've been kind of disappointed. That's stating it mildly. <laughs> exactly. But see, I think that the idea, so you got Nutter in your town who has uttered some statements that are so reactionary, you would think that he was talking about as a white politician in the South in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. I mean, he blaming, you know, blaming black folks and mothers and fathers for the, the conditions that we are in and stuff like that. So you don't have, and I'm not saying we don't have any transformational politicians now because we still have a handful of them. I always say the last one that was elected that we knew was like that was Harold Washington in Chicago. But we don't have as many as we used to. And and I think that what we're getting more of these politicians that are being elected, are, they, they feel they're being elected by white people rather than us. And so they don't feel an obligation to us once they enter office. And so they can say anything that they want to say. You know, I, I, I think, and I, I want to get your opinion on this because uh, – you know, you've been dealing with this. This is a part of your field. The challenge uh, is getting our people to understand that this system of white supremacy that we live under and have been living under since we've been here must be replaced. I, I think our people, some of our people have conformed or they feel as though it's nothing they can do, but our people must fight to replace this system that we live under. White supremacy is a system that we can't survive under. And it needs to be replaced. Right. Exactly. And, 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 and see, people will say to me a lot, Dr. Wimbers, you know, it's hard to change systems. No, it isn't. You know, well, I'm not saying no, it isn't, but Dr. King changed the system. You know, Marcus Garvey changed our attitude towards who we are as African people. We, we have uh, Oliver Tambo and others overthrew the government of South Africa doing their part there. You can change the system, and, and it doesn't mean that that system will be 100% what you want, but it'll be far more accommodating, you know, to what you desire. And it doesn't, I mean, look, Dr. King got rid of segregation, but we still are having it attacked. The system of white supremacy is always is unrelenting in trying to expand and refine itself. And we have to be unrelenting in opposing it. Uh, again, Neely Fuller says we, you know, we have to replace white supremacy with justice. You know, that's all black folk have always wanted is just simple justice. And to deal with systems, and I always ask people, you know, do you, like, it's good to have programs, you know, that you got, you know, an African-centered school, whatever. But I always tell organizations that have things geared for African children, adults, whatever, what are you doing also in dealing with the system of white supremacy? Okay. And we've got to have a program that does that. And it and it has and there are ways of doing it. There's a lot of ways of doing it. And I think a lot of us say, well, systems are so big and complex, you know, we just need to deal with the victims of the system. I think we've got to deal with the victims of the system, but all of us are, and we've got to deal with the system that victim, you know, creates the situation in the first place. 
we're joining the conversation tonight with uh, Dr. Rain, uh, Winbush, the Director of Institute of Urban Research at Morgan State University. You can join this conversation as a question of comment at 215-253-7263. That's 215-253-7263 to join the conversation. Uh, Dr. Winbush, before I let Brother Rich, Brother Ralph jump in here, um, I, I want you to, uh, because the, the comment I'm going to make will kind of lead into our discussion about reparations. But I uh, was listening to a um, a uh, video of you on uh, independent news uh, source, and you made a comment that I I think is very important, and I really want you to expand on it. You talked about our people, the state of our people here in this country, and since we've been here, is like uh, building a house on the swamp. And you mentioned that our people either have to learn or come up with ways to deal with the swamp or get out of the swamp. Talk about that leading into this conversation of reparations, because I think that's very important what you're saying, because I don't think that comes into a lot of our conversations. Either deal with the swamp or get out of the swamp. Well, I believe that. I think that you, we've got to create spaces in our homes, at our jobs, wherever we are, that is not, they are not the swamp. Uh, again, you know, one author I read said something, he said most people are not trying to get rid of white supremacy. They're trying to find a more comfortable place in it. And I think if you picture our children and we're in a swamp holding our children in our arms and trying to get them educated. It's like wading through a swamp. It's filthy. It's nasty. An alligator might be there. And and to extend the metaphor, you can drown in the swamp. And I think uh, what we've got to do is, first of all, realize that we are really in a swamp in terms of how we deal in day-to-day life with uh you know, school, with law enforcement officials, with our jobs being humiliated and insulted. It's a swamp. And I, I, regardless of where I am, I try to tell the truth. I don't care if it's an all-white audience, a mixed audience, or an all-black audience. You've got to tell the truth. And you, you can't – and this is why, you know, getting back to what you were saying about elected officials – Elected officials know that if they were telling the truth about racism in this country, that they feel that they won't be elected or reelected. And I think that we feel if we tell the truth on our job, that something will happen to us. Um, I had a sister friend of mine a couple of weeks ago talk about on her job, there were you know, a lot of black folks saying things about well, maybe these demonstrations are getting out of hand and maybe we shouldn't talk about Michael Brown and put up things like Black Lives Matter in our offices. You know, well, see, those are people that are afraid and we cannot be afraid to, that are killing our children and killing ourselves. I read a study the other day about, it was done in New Zealand and they're saying that uh, and was among the Maori people, the indigenous people of New Zealand, and they were talking about how racism affects 
even unborn children, pregnant women. <laughs> and I know in fact, there's this enzyme called cortisol, and it's a stress hormone. And when you're stressed out, it just makes you more nervous, high blood pressure. And when people experience racism, when women experience racism when they are pregnant, it takes its toll on the unborn child. So this stuff is killing us. And so we have to be brave enough to speak out, you know, appropriately when we have to. And many of us are afraid of doing that. We're just afraid. Let's go to, uh, Reg, before you jump in, let's let's take a call. Let's go to 404 area code. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hey, greetings to you, Elliot, Reggie, and Ralph. This is Sarah calling in from Dallas, Texas. How are you, Sarah? How are you doing, Sarah? Hey, Sarah. Hey, hey I'm, I'm doing, uh, Dr. Winbush, I'm doing very well, and thank you for accepting this phone call. Uh, what I have to say, am I coming in clear? Yes. Okay. No, what I have to um to say is this just a brief comment. You know, I, I get tired of hearing people making excuses for white people about white people say that they are in fear of black people. I think that that is a powerful excuse that we have that we have been conditioned into accepting, and we and this is their cheap get out of jail excuse that they have used because if they can use that that thing which is very broad to say I'm in fear for my life. And therefore, that is up to interpretation who, that your fear as a law enforcement person is more valid than me as an individual out here who should be more in fear of you. Because you have all of these implements of death that you carry around your wife. You have a baton, you have a gun with bullets, you have tasers, you have ability to put me in a chokehold. You have all of these things at your disposal, yet you want to say that you are in fear of your life. This is something that we have got to nip in the bud and stop allowing it to be used, and we accept it, and everyone is saying that white people are in fear, or these white cops are in fear of black people. No, they're not in fear. That is what they have told us that they are, but we are the ones who are more in fear of them. If that is the case, as you said in your data that you have collected with where these police are being recruited from to come and get this job, if they're knowing that they're coming to inner city, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Cleveland, New York, Atlanta, where the majority of the people are black or, or, or not of their ethnicity, and you decide that you're coming from rural USA as a white person, not exposed to black people, and you have this fear, why are you going to take a job in that location if your intention is not to be to victimize people? Because you know your power as being a white person and you know the influence that you carry and the weight of your color that you'll be able to do things to black people that you ordinarily would not be able to do in your own community. Hmm. So this is not fear. This is you exercising the power of the position that you are in as well as your white supremacist mindset of the skin color that you were born into. So please let's stop making excuses and making ourselves culpable for being black or being in this skin that we in. We are we highly melanated people that we are therefore somehow responsible because white people are saying that they are in fear every time they pull out their gun and they shoot it up. Well, we may be saying the same thing because, I, you know, see, when I talk about fear, I talk about fear like when, it, it, you know, somebody goes on a hunt you know, for uh, wolves or lions or tigers or bears, whatever. They go on a hunt. They're afraid of that animal, and but they're out there armed and dangerous. 
I do believe that many white police that I've talked to, they they want to kill black people. <laughs> and and they see the they see the and see we don't want to say, Oh, I don't believe that. Yes, they do, because I've heard white cops say this. You know, so I think that the desire to make sure that their minority status is white people on this planet, that white people do a lot of things to kill us because they are, I mean, Public Enemy did the album years ago called Fear of a Black Planet. I think the fear of white people that we are going to get assumed, uh, like smothered by black folk, marry their daughters, uh, take over the presidency of the United States, they no, live it, it in has- fear. It's, it's, that's that's not what they're in fear of. What they, what what's what behind their back? What's behind their back is the same thing that they're doing to the Palestinian people and all the people of color around the planet. When you know right. that you I have agree. done things to people, and you know that these yeah. people, what you what that these people are going to be seeking revenge for um for what you have done to them, then you're going to seek to eradicate them. It has nothing to do with fear, but you know what you have done. So you're taking preemptive action to make sure that there's no one around who's going to come to avenge that death. That is why they have decimated the, um, the so-called Native American population, all of the Aboriginal you know, people in Australia, New Zealand, and these other places. They have decimated them because you want to take possession of things that are not yours, and you want to make sure the rightful owners are not around within which to come back and seek revenge and take back those possessions. That is what, and that is not. Maybe we can agree. Maybe we can agree on the word anxiety then. Yeah, yeah, we we can say anxiety. They're in anxiety, correct, Doctor Winbush? Because they know in the back of their mind, as sociopathic and psychotic as they are, they know that what they have done to all of the indigenous people on this planet, they know in their in their mind what you want to say, karma or whatever um, other forms of adjectives you want to use, they know that they're deserving of a punishment. It's like a child that do something wrong, and they know they got a whooping coming to them, and they know that they better be prepared for it. White people know they got a serious whooping coming to them, and they're doing everything that well, they Francis, can to avoid it. Thank you for your yeah, call. See, what Francis does, well, he does in her analysis, is that she, she knows that white people do things to us, but she always asks the question, as most psychologists, it's like, why do white people do these things to us? Why did when they lynched men, they would castrate them? Why is it that they, regardless of where they go, there's destruction? And she says it's because they have this, we'll call it anxiety, about we're, in a, we're a minority people, we're only comprised about 8% of the world's population, and we've got to survive. And they're in a survival mode, and unfortunately, they take it out on us. They say we got to annihilate these people of color, regardless of where they are, in order to it's maintain our say, numbers and their expansion. Okay, I'll say this quickly. I'm sorry, and I'll get off the line. It's not so much that they that they are um, mm-hmm. with them uh, with the annihilation where they go after the genitalia of these people, because white people know that and that they're the ones who impose sex on us. Whether you're a man or a woman. They're the ones who impose sex. We don't go after them. They're the ones who come because everywhere white people go, especially white men, they impose themselves on the people sexually. So for them, as I said before, if they know that what they've accumulated and how they've gotten it, 
they have, um, they have, they have these things that they have, and it's, they're not supposed to have it in their possession because it came about as a, men, as a means of theft. So for them, in order to maintain what they have, they've got to destroy the people and make sure that the rightful owners don't ever have a chance to come back and get it. And that is why they go on these killing streets and they go everywhere they go. They just seek to get rid of the people and all evidence so that you would have no means of coming back and collecting what's rightfully yours. And thanks again, fellas. I'll continue to listen offline. Thanks for indulging me. Thank you for your call, sir, and your contribution. Thanks. Brother Reg, jump in here. Uh, Dr. Wimbush, good evening to you. Uh, my, hey, my how question, you doing, bro? I'm doing well. My, my my question that I have is when you look at when you're looking at white supremacy, I always feel that the religious establishment, black establishment, is culpable in in a lot of ways, based on what it is that they state that they believe in. But what they what yeah. they what they participate in willingly. Now, I'm trying yeah. to be fair-handed with this statement, but if you're telling, I put it this way: whether you're in a mosque, temple, or church, and you're telling your children about not lying, not stealing, not murdering, but you participate in in the political system, which you will have someone come right up in front of you and say they're going to do one thing and do the other. I don't look at that as partisan politics. I look at that as someone that's lying or stealing. I just, and, 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 right. and, and I think when you're talking about that analogy of being in the swamp, I think it's a perfect analogy because when I always think about the word sanctification means set, setting yourself apart, I, I just want your, 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 your input. Right. I, always believe, I always think and, and feel that one of our greatest problems is that we're, we're that we are not able to sanctify or separate ourselves based on our behavior away from these systems that we don't agree with. I just want to know. You're, you feel, go ahead, my no, brother. No, you're correct. I, I think that you know Du Bois in his uh, book uh, Dawn of Death, which was his first autobiography, he, he gives this analogy of black people being encased on a, in a glass mountain. And he said they can see out through the, you know, the thick glass. And as white people walk past it, they see the black people trying to get out and they claw on each other and all this other stuff. And the white people kind of look at and they don't see their own culpability in creating the glass mountain in, in the first place. And, and I think that it's hard to imagine a, a black world if you've been you know inoculated since birth that white is right you know and that that is the standard uh of everything you know the the old and i'm sure you've heard it, when i ask audiences uh name me three classical you know musicians they'll say beethoven mark mozart and haydn or something they won't even think about ellington or, you know, or Basie or Miles Davis or Coltrane because to them classical music has been downloaded in their brain about that classical music is white music that mm -hmm. was old. All cultures have classical music. The Chinese, the Japanese, Africans, everybody. 
But when we think of classical music, we think of Europe. And so part of that system, as you put it, that we're in, it's hard to get out of it because it's not only physically that we speak a language that was not our own or our religion, you know, which is another value system where we think of God as a white man. You know, I'm not ashamed to say when I was four or five years old, you know, I thought God was a white man. And I always tell people, if God is a white man, all is lost. You know, but we think of it because we've been taught to think of it, the images that are brought before. So the break out of that system, as Akbar says in his book, Change the Psychological Slavery, is not just breaking out of it physically, saying, I want to create safe places at in my home, at my job, whatever. But I'm also trying to break away from it psychologically. And that may be the greater challenge is how we think about stuff. You know, how do we conceive of our our viewpoint, of our worldview, which is oftentimes informed by how much white supremacy we've eaten. And, and thank you for your, your comments. I had that Fair of a Black Planet poster in my room. It was about six foot tall. And All right, when I was bro. in high school, and I, and I caught <laughs> hell from it from my mom. My mom didn't know what I, what I was about to do, what I was into. But, yeah, I always uh, was a, a big, bit, really into uh, Public Enemy and Karis One and those uh, right, right. hip-hop artists. And when, when I'm thinking about that, when, when I'm just thinking about what Sarah had called in to say. I agree with her on, on her point as far as we're always looking to when we're framing issues that that we yeah. know that are true against black people. We always want to frame it in a reference of good cops. There's some good white people, right. not all white people. That, But when I'm looking right. at it and I'm talking to people, I'll tell a white person that too. It's not hate. I, I believe that there are good white folks, you know, or I believe that there's some mm -hmm. people that look at justice and look at that that's 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 right that's wrong what's happening to black people whether they speak out or not that's another thing but i'm but them when i'm framing the reference of the question or having a conversation with other black folks that is something that's not even brought into shouldn't even be brought into the equation because it doesn't matter whether it's good or good or good or bad white cop it doesn't matter just all that matters is how you are looked upon as a black woman a black man and a black child within the confines of the system. That's how I always put it. And I and, and to go back to something else that you you were talking to Elliot about when you took talking about white supremacy and you talk about the economics and money. The more and more I'm reading, the more and more I'm studying. White supremacy hurts well-intentioned white folks also. And they, and they don't. And they don't it even. Does. They don't. They don't even know that. Why you have white folks that vote against. Their their best interest just because they can't stand exactly. black folks. So just something I want to right. put out there. See see what your thoughts are about that. No, I, I agree with you, especially on that last point. You know, Derek Bell talks about the faces at the bottom of the well, and he, as he says, that the poorest white person is taught that he or she is better than the best black person. See, and when people tell me what. Well, all white people aren't racist or they'll say things like, uh, as you just said, that uh, there's some good white people. 
what difference has it made in our condition? <laughs> I think, in other words, Great point. Great point. There are good white people. Great point. Great point. You know, I mean, let's say, let's say all white people are great. Let's just go David Duke included. What difference has it made in our condition? Being a good white person has not changed the condition of black people. And we also know that just because there are good white people, it doesn't mean Al trying on the 50th anniversary of the crown jewel of the Civil Rights Movement, the Voting Rights Act, that it is no longer a viable, the Supreme Court has eviscerated. And so, I don't, see, I don't care if there's good white people, because, you know, I, it doesn't make a difference. We got to work to get rid of white supremacy, and a lot of times, black folk confuse white people with white supremacy, and they're different. They're very different. Dr. Wimbush, in uh, April, uh, the Institute of the Black World uh, yes. with Ron Daniels is hosting a... Uh, yeah, very quickly, um, the Institute of the Black World under Ron Daniels, I'm going to try to get this like a 30 seconds on this. The the CARICOM is the, the, un, the union of black Caribbean nations, and they have filed a lawsuit against three nations so far. In, uh, in Europe who participated in and executed the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, they set up a commission in each of the 15 nations that are members of CARICOM, and they are studying, producing major documents about the impact of the transatlantic slave trade. They produced 10 points. And so Hillary Beckles, who teaches at the University of uh, West Indies and Barbados, uh, he has produced a 10 points here in the commission of how and what we need in terms of reparation. And so what we're doing is doing the same model here in the United States, and the organizational meeting will be in early April in New York City. We hope to establish a similar commission on the continent, also one in Europe. And so these four together will comprise a global, it will consolidate the uh, struggle for reparations throughout the planet. And so uh, we're going to be meeting. Everybody's invited. Uh, we sh we're sure that the FBI and CIA will be there. Because, <laughs> and, and, and if they come, we'll try to weed out as many as we can. But, you know, you you, got sh you should come there knowing that. Yes. And so... Um, we're excited about it because the reparation struggle and the research that I've done over the years um, is the only struggle. If you go back 300 years, it's what African people, not only in this country, but in South America, in, in Europe, on the continent, we have been trying to repair the damage done by white people. What black folk are trying to do all over the planet is to clean up the mess that white people created in our communities and in many cases their own communities. And so reparations gets at that. And I would, you know, really urge your listeners to study reparations rather than making assumptions about it that may not even be true. Uh, Dr. Winbush, uh, I know that you, uh, eight o'clock hours, you'll cut off because you have a, Another engagement. Uh, let's let's see if we can get a couple calls in here. Seven zero eight area code. Sure. What's, your, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Uh, this is uh, Cordell uh, from Chicago, Illinois. How, how are you, Cordell? All righty, all right, sir. Um, 
on the reparations, I think that we are due reparations for many, many reasons. Uh, most of the problems that we suffer, most people don't see cause and effect, but most problems in the black community stem right from white supremacy, supremacy and racism. Yes. Whether it be a man that doesn't have a job. See, I, I, I use these kind of sayings when I talk to young people. We live in a, a society where a man will starve you to death, and then if you steal a crumb of bread, he'll lock you up. So that's an unjust right. society. And, and there's no way to really explain it like killing our children in the street. There's no way to justify it. We don't have one black leader who has stood up and said, this is a travesty of justice. This is a travesty to mankind, period. Nobody's saying anything. I'm, I'm finding it remarkable, to say the least. Well, no, I, I agree with you, brother. And, and, and the, the reparations, one of the things that many of us have heard, Ta-Nehisi Coates' article was, was in last April's issue of The Atlantic, and he talks about the case for reparation. And one of the things that I admire about Brother Coates is that he, usually when I talk about re- reparation, I start from enslavement up to the present. But what yes, he sir. does is start at the present and go backwards, like you just said, Brother. And what we, we don't reason, we don't connect the historical dots. Yeah. You know, I ask my students at Morgan sometimes, why are there... Why do black folks sell drugs in the city? Well, they need to make money. But well, why they drop they in the community. It's, it's part of right. the plan. They drop the drugs in the community because it, it, it does exactly. a lot of things. They make a lot of money, but they dist- they destabilize the community. They create chaos exactly. in the community. Then they then they exactly. use their criminal justice system, their system of mass confusion, their criminal justice system to re-enslave you. Now, 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 right. let me say one thing. I, I, I one for one believe slavery never ended. If you check the Thirteenth Amendment, slavery never ended. Right. Right. Oh, oh, no, I agree. What they have to do is criminalize you some kind of way, whether it's crossing the street at the wrong time, jaywalking. They they can find an excuse to put you in their right. system. And, and what we're seeing, as Michelle Alexander has pointed out, we're seeing the, increasingly the criminalization yes, of sir. black people at younger and younger age. So that now Tamir Rice in Cleveland can be shot and killed by a police officer. And they say, well, it's not his fault. He looked like a man. And you know what, sir, to that point, everything they're doing right now is conditioning the mindset of the people, desensitizing people to the slaughter, senseless slaughter of black people. I don't care whether it's man, woman, or child. It should not be. Man, listen, I don't want to go to war, but if I have to go to war, I will. You know what I'm saying? I hope we don't have to do it, but if we're going to have to do what we got to do because nobody can help us but us. We're going to have to look at each other. We're going to have to determine what we're going to do. We're going to have to do it. And not say we're going to do it. We're going to have to do it. Because, see, That's the world right. is not believing us right now. Look at this thing in France. we got all these riots going on. They're going to pull this thing in France because these people have the nerve to insult people's religion. See, that's the whole thing about white supremacy. White supremacy says we can do whatever the hell we want, and we don't care what nobody says because we're going to close ranks, period, because it's what we say. And it's just like that. And that's how you got to look at it. The, all the, all the, the, the deceit and treachery, they're going to do what well, they Well, see, do. and then the other thing, we have to be Bro- very... Brother, thank you for your call. All right, sir, we, peace. We've got to be a... We got, peace, brother, but we've got to be a student in our analysis. I've been really kind of amused that over the past couple of weeks, I see a lot of black folk putting I Am Charlie, you know, which is like this newspaper that was attacked in France, and they said, you know, it's all about free speech and all about free speech. 
Well, see, they're getting ready to lock up a brother. I forget his name. He's a rap artist because he had lyrics, and he has never committed a crime, has no criminal record, but he's ready to serve life in prison right now. Where's his free speech? How come people aren't putting out, I know his last name is uh, Brandon, but why we don't see I am Brandon, you know, he's getting ready to go to jail for free speech. Free speech is for white folks. But, you know, again, our analysis has to be done. It has to be sharper than it is right now. Let's squeeze two more minutes in. Uh, 301 area code, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Yes, my name is Watu. I'm calling from Frederick, Maryland. How, how are you, Watu? I want to commend you on your uh, uh, topic tonight and Professor Wimbush, uh, greetings. And I hope Ralph hey, Reggie are doing fine. Uh, my comment is that the question, the whole question of reparation is an age-old question. Uh, we know that uh, uh, I, I think that reparations is more than just about, our, you know, our history inside of this country because the devastation that was done to Africa has to be figured into that, uh, into that process as well. And I think therein lies some of our, our more contemporary problems because I heard, heard you uh, uh, speaking earlier and that uh, how we're going to, you know, get out of this quandary that we're in. Uh, this question of, uh, is largely referred to as, as uh, white supremacy. I think it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, imperialism, uh, but be that as it may, uh, it's the same thing. It, 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 uh, but uh, why is it, or it seems to me that we're the only recipients of this, uh, this, this white supremacist policy. You look at, uh, and that's not to say that other ethnic groups don't fall prey to police terror, discrimination, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But um, uh, it seems like, you know, it's, it's, it's African people and Hispanic people that are largely uh, the victims of this. And I think that uh, one of the possibly one of the reasons that we find ourselves uh, uh, isolated in that area, uh, the, the exceptions in that area, is because we, we don't have any economic base back to our homeland. Now, Africa was definitely... Uh, a victim of, of the slave trade, uh, and in talking to some of our, our brothers and sisters there, they acknowledge that, and they want they want uh, you know reparations for the destruction uh, that the Africa incurred as a result of the enslavement. But yeah. we, I think, we have to have some kind of economic connection with Africa, and I think that we have to begin to withdraw from this society because I, I, rem- I, I remember back in the '60s with the Montgomery bus boycott, and all of us remember that. But they were effective yeah. tactics that we distance ourselves from them crackers. But now, you know, yeah. you know, uh, I heard on this show that McDonald's specifically targets African communities with their commercials, and still, yeah. you know, we go there. But so I think that, you know, uh, I think we have to begin to reach out to our masses. And I'm glad that this radio. I'm glad I found this radio station. Uh, but the masses of people, of our people, you know, little JoJo down on the corner and Shaniqua and, and, and Bobby, uh, they have to be made aware of this knowledge, and we have to reach out to them because the reparation movement, in my opinion, again, will not be successful unless it reaches to the back alleys, to the pool halls, to the rec centers. Because, you know, we who know uh, that whole question, we're not going to get it done. Uh, and that, that's my comment. Brother Watu, well, I, I want, I want to thank you for your contribution. Thank you. Brother Wimbush, I want to thank you for being with us. I'm going to be in touch with you to, uh, more often than the, than I had been in the past. I hadn't talked to you since you were here at the uh, 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 the charter school up there. And you know what, uh, the, the charter oh, school yeah. you were at, uh, been 
that neighborhood has been gentrified and the, and the, the school is, uh, is no longer there. The building you were in was no longer there. So uh, we have work to do. Are you serious? Yeah. I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. It was a so, good uh, experience, too. I'm sorry to hear that. But we'll be in touch, brother. you got to keep doing what you're doing as well, man. I'll be talking to you soon. Thank you for your work. Okay, brother. See you. All right. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation in the second half of our program with adjunct professor of political science at Delaware State University, Brother Ezra Aharon. We'll be right back. to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowner's insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. The economic philosophy of black nationalism only means that we should own and operate and control the economy of our community. You would never find, you can't open up a black store in a white community, white man won't even patronize you. And he's not wrong. He's, he got sense enough to look out for himself. And you, you don't have sense enough to look out for yourself. The white man, the white man is too intelligent to let someone else come and gain control of the economy of his community. But you will let anybody come in and control the economy of your community. Control the housing, control the education, control the jobs, control the businesses uh, under the pretext that you want to integrate. No, you're out of your mind. (laughs) 
the political, the economic philosophy of black nationalism only means that we have to become involved in a program of re-education to educate our people into the importance of knowing that when you spend your dollar out of the community in which you live, the community uh, in which you spend your money becomes richer and richer, the community out of which you take your money becomes poorer and poorer. And because these Negroes who have been misled, misguided, are breaking their necks to take their money and spend it with the man. The man is becoming richer and richer, and you're becoming poorer and poorer. And then what happens? The community in which you live becomes a slum. It becomes a ghetto. The conditions become run down. And then you have the audacity to, com to complain about poor housing and a run-down community. Why, you run it down yourself when you take it down. This is what we have to do. Now, the other thing we'll have to do is this. Always anchor our external direct action with the power of economic withdrawal. Now, we are poor people. Individually, we are poor when you compare us with white society in America. We are poor. Never stop forget that collectively, that means all of us together, collectively we are richer than all the nations in the world with the exception of nine. Did you ever think about that? After you leave the United States, Soviet Russia, Great Britain, West Germany, France, and I can name others, the American Negro collectively is richer than most nations of the world. We have an annual income of more than $30 billion a year, which is more than all of the exports of the United States and more than the national budget of Canada. Did you know that? That's power right there if we know how to prove it. Children are concerned. Now, if you are not prepared to do that, we do have an agenda that we must follow. And our agenda calls for withdrawing economic support from you. So as a result of this, we're asking you tonight to go out and tell your neighbors not to buy Coca-Cola in Memphis. Go by and tell them not to buy sealed pest milk. Tell them not to buy what is all the bread, Wonder Bread. And what is other bread come to Jesse? Tell them not to buy hearts bread. As Jesse Jackson has said, up to now, only the garbage men have been feeling pain. Now we must kind of redistribute the pain.
And not only that, we've got to strengthen black institutions. I call upon you to take your money out of the banks downtown and deposit your money in Tri-State Bank. We want a bank-in movement in Memphis. Go by the Savings and Loan Association. I'm not asking you something that we don't do ourselves in SCLC. Judge Hooks and others will tell you that we have an account here in the Savings and Loan Association from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. We are telling you to follow what we are doing. Put your money there. You have six or seven black insurance companies here in the city of Memphis. Take out your insurance there. We want to have an insurance in. Now, these are some practical things that we can do. We begin the process of building a great economic base. And at the same time, we are putting pressure where it really hurts. I ask you to follow through here. Now let me say as I move to my conclusion that we've got to give ourselves to this struggle until the end. Nothing would be more tragic than to stop at this point in Memphis. We've got to see it through. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. And uh, I want to thank again our first guest, Dr. Ray Wimbush, author, lecturer, and activist. Uh, they'll be in New York in April with the uh, Institute of the Black World hosting the uh, Reparations Summit. We're shifting gears, and not really shifting gears, because we're still traveling down this path, and we're going to do it with Associate Professor of Political Science at Delaware State University, our friend, Brother Ezra Al-Haron. Brother Ezra. Good evening, Brother Elliot. <laughs> How you doing? How are you, sir? I'm great. I'm great. Good to be back. Yeah, you're back. You're where you know Brother Ray's, and uh, we're joined also by Brother Ralph. Yeah, uh, okay, Brother Good Ralph. Good evening, sir. Uh, Brother Reggie, is Brother Reggie there? <laughs> yes, I am. How you doing, Brother Ezra? Oh, okay. Good, good, good. Yeah, I'm fine, good. Brother. Good to be back. I know I haven't been here in a while. You know, normally you brothers call me and, you know, like a uh, fighter here in the bell, I, I come out swinging. But, you know, I've been uh, doing other things, so I haven't been on in a while. But it's good to be back. Listen, your imprint has been felt. I mean, we see your work, and, uh, and a lot of guests that we have had on have come from your pipeline, your recommendations. So uh, your, your your stamp is here. <laughs> oh, great. great minds think alike. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I, I want to kind of segue into, uh, because I don't know whether you heard the first hour talking with uh, Dr. Winbush in his work. Yeah, I heard some of it, yes, I Okay, did. and uh, I just played a clip of uh, Martin Luther King in his last speech, uh, Malcolm first and then Martin on his last speech there before he was, the day before he was murdered. Uh, it's speeches like that that you don't really hear. And when I say right. you, I'm not. I'm just talking about this. Not really played for a lot right. of our population in general. They don't know right. 
the they uh, consumption. Yeah, they don't know the king of the last three years of his life. They know the I have a dream king. Right. But your 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 let your your book, um, the last one that the uh, uh, pawn sovereignty, mm-hmm. uh, the sharper perspectives of uh, of uh, Americanization, Africa war and reparations. Mm-hmm. You know, and and also the first one from civil rights to sovereign rights. We look at some of the advances, if we can consider them that that the uh, the laws that was changed under King and under Malcolm's influence during that period. We see now that fifty years later, that uh, white supremacy and white folks uh, operating through it are ready and and uh, more than willing to pull the rug out from under what some of our folks considered advances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you wrote about this in two of your publications. Is it time now for the issue of sovereignty and sovereign rights to be seriously talked about among our people? And I know it's been talked about in conscious circles, but mm-hmm. is it time for it to enter the churches, the temples and mosques to seriously be talked about, in your opinion, Brother Ezra? Well, even if you were to closely examine the speech of Dr. King uh, that you just played, his his last speech uh, to the Southern Leadership uh, Conference, if you listen closely, a lot of the influences that are being interjected in his speech are, in essence, sovereign perspectives. <laughs> Now, did he say sovereignty? Was he preaching sovereignty? No, not in that sense. But you have to remember, too, uh, Dr. King being as astute as he was, if you look at the times that the civil rights movement unfolded and the successes that were gained, those things happened concurrently with the liberation movements in Africa. And so the civil rights movement and the armed struggles for independence in Africa happened simultaneously. And Dr. King himself, as well as Malcolm X, had both been to Africa. Uh, sat with uh, Osajifo, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, in Ghana doing independence for Ghana in um 1957, and prior to uh, Nkrumah, the notion of an African president was unheard of because Africa colonized from one point to the other. So Africa had lost all of its sovereignty up until that point in time. So Dr. King, as well as Malcolm, uh, being in the presence of an evolving Africa at that time, with a lot of hope, a lot of potential. Uh, America, on the other end, observing this interaction between black leaders and what they would consider revolutionary uh, African leaders on the continent, did all they could to try to avoid what was a civil rights movement from escalating into what could have possibly been a sovereign rights movement by conceding to civil rights. But in another speech Dr. King uh, gave, he said civil rights cost America nothing. There was, there, there was no price for that. And so America, as, as 
I outline uh, in Pawn Sovereignty conceded to civil rights for the sole purpose, in many ways, if you look at the critique of it, to avoid the escalation of civil rights into possibly something else. So uh, the colonialism and slavery are two bookend forces. You know, uh, colonialism was an extension of slavery, and that's how we have to see it. And so when we're talking about any type of 21st century movement in any context of revolution or independence or, or sovereignty, there's this collectivity that we have to see ourselves within that stream of history for it to really make sense and gain traction, whether you're talking about sovereignty or rather like in the last segment you're talking about uh, reparations, uh, there are connections to the struggle that we really need to be more acutely aware of. Brother Leslie, uh, before I get Bridge and Ralph involved, uh, do you, in your opinion, uh, do you think that religion, and I'm not talking about spirituality because our people have been a spiritual people long before we came. We brought spirituality to the world. So I'm, I'm not dealing with the spirituality part of it. But do you think religion stops our people from discussing and seriously putting on the table the issue of sovereignty? Because if I believe I'm a Christian and uh, been dipped in the blood of Jesus or, or a Muslim, and I make my pilgrimage to Mecca or, 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 or whatever I believe, then it really stops me from seriously talking about the issue of sovereignty because I don't look at the continent of Africa as being an ancestral home, mm-hmm. if you know what I'm saying. I mean, Maybe I'm framing that wrong, but do you think mm-hmm. the religion or religions, religiosity of our people stops them from seriously talking about sovereignty? If it does, let me say it it shouldn't, because religion and revolution has always worked hand in hand. Uh, Dr. N.Y. Clyde, who wrote a book called The Antisocial Contract, says that in the history of the nation, religion and politics have always been the instrument of the other. Either one is leading and the other follow, or vice versa. And uh, even if you look at... uh, the influences of revolutions by enslaved Africans, whether it was Nat Turner, Denmark Vesey, Gabriel Prosser, uh, David Walker's writings, uh, religion and revolution were combined as one. And, and so uh, there's nothing at odds when one begins to understand that religion must be used as an instrument of revolution as an instrument of liberation so they in essence go hand in hand if your religion forbades you for fighting for justice and for fighting for things which are true then that person or those people would have to question the essence of what the religion is truly based upon because i would say that ultimately that religion serves someone else other than it provides for your own best interest. You know, I was I was getting ready to mention that, but you kind of beat me to the punch because when you see uh, verses quoted to some of our people that have been quoted since slavery, 
uh, verses mm-hmm. like uh, uh, obey those that have rule over you, uh, mm-hmm. uh, things of that nature, then that mm-hmm. s- that subconsciously stops our people from fighting against governments or systems, even if they have been brutal to our people or have a history of being brutal to our people. Yeah, because interpretation is, is another level of it, you know, because uh, uh, once again, you, you look at um, Gabriel Prosser. He began to reinterpret scriptures and use the same scriptures to show how the scriptures related to the African struggle. So interpretations are always important. And once again, you know, even, it, well, it may be necessary to take a look at religion for the past 1,000, 2,000, or 5,000 years to see where these interpretations came from, to see where these precepts unfolded, and if, in fact, uh, they are in agreement with what we actually, or what the original interpretation of those scriptures are. So uh, maybe we do need a religious overhaul in terms of, of, of thinking and perspectives. So. I mean, I'm I'm for that too. You asked me the other day about uh, was I a, a pro or kind of something. I told you, you know, I'm I'm just about pro anything as long <laughs> as I believe that, you know, the objective of it is for the redemption and liberation of dealing with the issues that you know we've been faced with that have stubbornly persisted for the past 400 years. So religious overhaul. Uh, Count me in. I uh, I had a friend of mine that traveled to Uganda uh, a couple of weeks ago, and before he left, I told him to get in contact with with uh, your friend, and uh, has become a mutual friend since your introduction, Milton Alamadi, because okay, I knew that Milton, great he, brother. I knew that he was from Uganda, and he has you know a lot of connections there. So I I told him to reach out to him, uh, telling mm-hmm. that you know, that I told him to contact him because he was going to Uganda for the first time and, you know, mm-hmm. things to, to look for because he's a conscious individual also. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got right. back, uh, from his journey. Uh, he was there two weeks and he, I saw okay. him the other day and he told me, he said, uh, you know, it's a lot of things going on in, in Uganda. Um, mm-hmm. he said that there's huge, um, areas of land that they're offering to uh, people that uh, that want to start businesses or have some type of, of, of uh, substantial business opportunities that they want to do in Uganda. So he mm-hmm. said that he's seen that European companies is taking advantage of it. How he said Coca-Cola is building a plant there and others. He said, you know, it's really time for us to take advantage of these things because he said, I've, I've been, and he traveled to one other African country earlier this summer, and it escapes me the country that he mm-hmm. went to. But he mm-hmm. talked about the uh, the the uh, state of Uganda, the country of Uganda, offering land to to mm-hmm. our folks. And see, these are the things that never get back to our people here. That you have countries in the in the land of our nativity that want our people to come back and to contribute something uh, to the society in general. Because you see mm-hmm. uh, China and the United States in a land grab for Africa now. Mm-hmm. You know, you wrote about this in two of your books, uh, and I know, in your opinion, it's time for us to look at a, a, a listen. 
being realistic, a lot of our people wouldn't want to go back to the continent. But it's necessary that we have the option, Mm -hmm. the sovereign option, to be able to start a new life in another place if we can develop the relationship, the proper relationships that that we should have with our brethren on the mother continent. Uh, Give me your opinion before I turn it over, pass that mic to uh, Brother Ray. Well, if Africa, as we would think the typical African-American sees it, that they want to be detached from Africa, it's a curious question as to why then did Europeans find it so interesting that even like in South Africa, they would pick up stakes and completely transplant themselves out of Europe into <laughs> Africa and fight wars on African soil to keep over right, the right to exist in Africa. And, you know, why then did Europeans go through the great extent of colonizing every square inch of of Africa with the exception of uh, Ethiopia uh, and partially Liberia, you you could say. Uh, So there's a value to Africa that we as Africans who are in America perhaps are not attuned to, that Europeans are prepared to die for. So uh, Americanization, uh, Brother Elliot, it's a powerful force because at some point it made Africans wake up one morning and yawn and look in the mirror and feel as though they are Americans. And for people who feel that way, you know, I always make this uh, qualifier, you know, Africans here are American as well, and there is uh, 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 justified reasons that people should feel that way. So at the same time, there should be no conflict between those of us who embrace Africanism and those of us who embrace Americanization. We shouldn't look at the two as being competing ideals. We could both benefit greatly by understanding that there should be no contradictions between the two because by virtue of history, by virtue of politics, by virtue of circumstances that unfolded, uh, we are what I describe as both and. We're both African and American, and we have entitlements to that both and uh, designation. And as we move forward in this 21st century, I think that's a concept that we need to really become more cognizant of, both and. We're joined in conversation this evening by uh, Professor Ezra Al-Haron, Associate Professor of Political Science at Delaware State University, uh, discussing uh, two of his critically acclaimed books, Sovereign Evolution, Manifest Destiny from Sovereign, some Civil Rights to Sovereign Rights, and Pawn Sovereignty, Sharpened Black Perspectives on Americanization, Africa, War, and Reparations. Uh, Brother Reg, jump in here. Uh, and also, you can join this conversation, too, at 215-253-7263. That's 215-253-7263. Brother Reg. Brother Ezra. My question for you, and I have a statement and a question. And and when when we when anyone talks about sovereignty, it's almost like talking about heaven and hell. 
you, you know, you never been there, but you read a lot about it. You have your own ideas of what you think it will feel like, how it would operate. Can you explain in the simplest terms what sovereignty is and what it would look like for a black man, woman, a child in the United States of America? Mm-hmm. Well, in, in a very simplistic sense, uh, sovereignty is political authority that's recognized and respected. And it's expressed in political thought and in practical institutions, whereby the highest level of that involves self-government, whereby that government is based on the political and ideological self-identity of a people. What's important to understand is that when you're talking about slavery or the European slave trade that ultimately brought Africans from Africa to the shores of this Western Hemisphere, is that slavery did not just deprive and deny Africans of freedom. That, yes, that occurred, but that's passe. What slavery did in its unfolding ramifications is that slavery dispossessed and disinherited Africans in this hemisphere of being a sovereign people. Because prior to the European slave trade, Africa was just as sovereign as any other region, any other continent, any other state in the world. Africa as a continent comprised sovereign cultures, sovereign empires, sovereign civilizations. And so it's important to understand that in speaking about sovereignty in the 21st century as an African person in America, it's not a matter of creating some new ideal. It's simply a matter of revisiting and reconnecting with the ideal that was once part of who we were. We weren't introduced to government and politics and constitutional law and uh, uh, judicial systems here in this hemisphere or in Europe, in Athens, in Greece, or in London, in, in Great Britain. We were introduced to those concepts in Africa. And so when you're talking about the about sovereignty, as I write about it in my works, I'm speaking about sovereignty in terms of the consciousness and in terms of the concept, that it's important that we don't lose sight of the significance of what sovereignty is all about. And so it is within that realm that my work deals with sovereignty as a concept and as a consciousness. And to, and to further and to further that that your point, I, I have both your books, and your second book I, I use it like I use it like an encyclopedia or a dictionary. Right. When, when we had this conversation, I really I really enjoyed that. You know, your second your pawn sermon, I really enjoyed it. I mm-hmm. uh, learned a lot of what I have to come back to when I'm saying simplistic. When you look at the concept and the structure, and what sovereignty is. And what you just mm-hmm. stated, that's fine. But 
within that concept and that structure also always has to come back to individuals, how mm-hmm. they how they relate to it and what sort of actions they need to take in order to realize that end game, whether you want to say sovereignty or whether you want to say freedom. And that's what I that's what I really want you to I'm trying to get from you for the listening audience understand. I'll use an example. Within the United States, we've known that we've had fully functioning independent towns within the United St- within, within this within this country that were mm-hmm. fully functioning by black folks. Mm-hmm. Also, the, uh, the uh, another example I would utilize is the functioning of the uh, Elijah Muhammad with the Nation of Islam of some of those tenets of sovereignty. When I think about sovereignty. In, in the in the structure of how you're saying it, I'm looking at it as the individuals have to buy into that or they have to look back historically to see, well, this is us. This was always us. What's, what would be the easiest way or the best models for, for an individual that might be interested in understanding this outside of purchasing your books mm-hmm. to understand what are the best examples that, we could, that a person could look to use as a framework individually so they can figure out how to do that for themselves and also how mm-hmm. to incorporate this incorporate this for their family and their, and, and people that they run into. Mm-hmm. Well, when when you're talking about sovereign movements, I think it's important to demarcate it in terms of time frames because you can go all the way back uh, to the 1780s, 1790s, with Thomas Peters, who went to Sierra Leone in hopes of establishing self-government as a sovereign nation, which didn't occur because the British had no intentions of allowing Africans with their assistance to develop a, a sovereign nation that would be on par or that could compete with European nations. And that has never been the objective or the intent of any European, be it an enslaver or a colonizer. Uh, you can fast forward in time to Paul Cuffey or to uh, uh, Martin Delaney. Different time frames, different structures were attempting to be put in place, as well as uh, 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 strengthening uh, Haiti's sovereignty, as well as looking at other, Delaney looked at other places like Costa Rica and different places in, in, in South America to establish some form of, of self-government. So like I said, it's not a new ideal, but what it is is that in whatever period in time that it occurred, we have to look at it as just that. Now in the 21st century, uh, uh, the ideal of it is something that I always I always like to say that uh, a sovereign conception depends upon the collective intellect of the people who seek it, of the nucleus of men and women who structure what sovereignty would look like because, you know, there are a lot of different sovereignties in the world. The Vatican is, is a sovereign nation. And it only has uh, less than one square mile of, of territory. Yet, ideologically, it has influence over a billion people 
in the world. Uh, Native Americans here in the confines of U.S. territory, uh, they have limited forms of, of, of sovereignty. So it, it takes on different forms, different shapes. A couple years ago, uh, there was a conference in Australia uh, called New Worlds, New Sovereignties that I was invited to. I wrote a paper uh, dealing with uh, the ideal of sovereignty. And people from different parts of the world, they were astonished that to know that African people in America were speaking about sovereignty. They had no idea because the perception is America is the greatest country in the world. How could you possibly desire <laughs> something else? Or how can you even conceptualize something else? So one of the things about uh, slavery, uh, not only that it dispossessed and disinherited uh, African people of sovereignty, but it also disemboweled the consciousness of sovereignty, which is why uh, we're discussing it now. Uh, but if you attempt to have a discussion about sovereignty, typically with black people, it's a, it's a very abbreviated conversation. <laughs> and if you're talking about self-applying the concept, it's even more abbreviated because uh, it's, a, it's a subject that we're not as familiar with as we should be. And so, you know, to wrap it up and to encapsulate what I would say again is the answer to your question, you know, it, 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 it's incumbent upon the collective intellect of, uh, of the people, uh, Brother Reggie. You know, and one of the aims of my work is to get that consciousness stimulated to develop those kinds of, of conversations. Uh, you know, because it may be simply in association with uh, what uh, Brother Winbush was just speaking about, about reparations. Yes. Because uh, 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 I, I write that reparations is a subset topic of the conversation of sovereignty. Mm-hmm. It looks like... <laughs> The, the way the way that you bring leverage to the issue of reparations is by saying simply, first and foremost, that we as African people in America have the sovereign right to exist. We do not have to be subjected to government being superimposed upon us. And an extension of that conversation is, well, what document did we ever sign? And when you look at the uh, culmination of slavery that ended with it with the Thirteenth Amendment, which in essence is an insult, one because it only comprises forty-three words. How can you, in uh, two hundred and fifty years of slavery, with forty-nine words, forty-three words? It it take you more words to order lunch at McDonald's <laughs> in 43 words. It'd take you more, word, more words to break up a fight between two five-year-olds to resolve that. So if the conversation shifts to the absolute notion that we have the sovereign right to exist, then reparations naturally becomes a subset conversation of that. But I don't believe that reparations in and of itself 
that this government will acknowledge any sense of traction with reparations to grant it any type of credence. Otherwise, it would have done it already. And besides, slavery was done deliberately. So as far as government is concerned, there's nothing to repair. <laughs> We're joining the conversation this evening with Professor Ezra Alarone. Professor of Political Science at Delaware State University, and you can join this conversation by dialing with a question or comment by dialing 215-253-7263. That's 215-253-7263. It's a caller on the line, 370 area code. What's your name? Where you calling from? Uh, Richard. How are, you? how are you, Richard? Hi, how you doing? Great. How's everybody? And, and Professor, I could not uh, agree with you more and the challenge. And I kind of like hung up because the question I had was to sh- for you to kind of do that historical um, um, walkthrough of the sovereign position, especially from the perspective of consciousness. I raised the question, I guess one, I will raise the question, structurally, have we created sovereign institutions? And that's where I think Reggie's point about um, um, different communities in North America where, you know, we've had other people use the thing of Rosewood, and even that's not really taken, but we've had black um, communities, and they mm-hmm. they have been under sovereign structures, I would assume, even if they were counties or towns. But mm-hmm. um, there has been a debate amongst, um, I call American Africans, around whether we should be wholeheartedly American within the American structure or have a sovereign structure of our own. So I, want, I guess I would like to uh, have you kind of flush that out. And I do agree. We cannot, I haven't seen, um, looking at the international law, that you can really even go to the court around reparations unless you come as a sovereign nation asking for repair. So it gets back to the infrastructure. It gets back to thinking. And as you say, to the consciousness, because if you don't act, individually in your decision-making process you don't create infrastructure and if you don't create infrastructures you can't place demand on a structure that has mm-hmm. harms that's right. the way i think i don't know that's so i guess i'm asking you is that am i missing something no great great observation because uh, the consciousness is key people always say oh we need an army oh we need territory well you did Territory and armies and constitutions and currencies, those are products and symbols of sovereignty. You don't see sovereignty. You don't look at a nation and say, oh, look at that sovereignty. Look at, look at this sovereignty because it's, it's intangible. What you see comes in the, forms of, in the form of products and symbols uh, of sovereignty. And those products and symbols are directly related to consciousness. And so you cannot create what you cannot think. And you cannot be sovereign if you don't think sovereign. So that's why even with the conversation of sovereignty, as I said, it's very abbreviated when you talk to Africans here in, in this country because it's something that we're so unfamiliar with. And, and so 
uh, even though sovereignty is the highest level of political accountability and responsibility that a people can undertake, it just seems so ironic that it's a concept that we are so unfamiliar with. But the only reason why that that's true, once again, is because of the psychological influences that occurred during slavery. And, and excuse me? No, no, go ahead. Can I raise another, as you say that, because I'm wondering, if, if I may, and this will be my last thought on it, but one thing that I could be thinking, I'm thinking is that we, can we not overlook those um, individuals or uh, a group of individuals who recognize sovereignty and put them in place had um, um, state um, intervention that, uh, you know, abruptly, whether it be by imprisonment or by uh, killing or by, um, you know, um, creating um, this deception and distortion within the structures that they tried mm -hmm. to create to implement mm -hmm. sovereignty um, in the historical past and in, in the mod in the in the present you know yeah. um, period that we can't overlook and then those within the community we call African Americans who we assemble with who don't their consciousness don't necessarily believe they bear you know they see some benefit we might have called them opportunists at one time but mm -hmm. they weren't willing to go all the way to be right. self-governing and were used as uh, vehicles, if not vessels, to disrupt or destroy the movement towards sovereignty. Is that, mm -hmm. should we also have that and understanding as we have this kind of discussion? And I appreciate yeah. the comment. Mm -hmm. and, and, right. Because I said earlier that I, 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 I'm a believer that the two ideals do not necessarily have to be competing. And what I mean by that is that I said earlier that both and, we're both African and American by circumstances of, of history, by circumstances of politics, and so forth. And uh, 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 as you said, there's always conflict. That's, that's to be expected because whatever the sovereign power is, that power uh, stands to lose in the process. So for, those, for that reason, it's always very controversial because economically uh, someone is not going to benefit from you as they formerly did. So naturally, you know, there, there's a conflict, you know. So uh, 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 it's important that we discuss sovereignty as I said, within the context of the consciousness and the concept itself. Because I, I write in my books and I'll say oftentimes, you know, I'm not leading a sovereign movement for political independence. What I'm simply doing is speaking about sovereignty within the stream of consciousness that it has unfolded as a concept because it has always been relevant to us as a people. And somewhere within that conversation of sovereignty, I'm a believer that it will garner people to take our issues more seriously than if we ignore the concept or pretend that it doesn't exist. Because, first of all, we're dying anyway. 
you know, and we can't even stop our kids from killing each other. So a lot of times people say about fighting a war for sovereignty. We, we've been dying ever since we've been here, and all we got is integration. And the benefits of that is debatable. <laughs> you know, so uh, 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 sovereignty, as, as I see it, is not something far-fetched or some form of dangerous proposition, because how much more danger could we be in? Richard, I want to thank you for your call. Uh, caller, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Um, this is Scotty. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing okay. Um, I, I just wanted to, um, some information, because misinformation, and I'm not, you know, saying this in a derogatory way, but we know our, our people been brainwashed and fed all type of misinformation, but the statement was made earlier as I was listening about the 13th Amendment, and then, you know, slavery is being spoken of in past tense, when in fact the 13th Amendment, as you well know, Elliot, because I've spoken to you about it, and uh, other people I'm connected to through Facebook, about the 13th Amendment has a giant exception clause, which says that you can be enslaved as long as they convict you of a crime. Mm -hmm. Now, I know people have heard of the book, which would later turn into the film, Slavery by Another Name, uh, today, a new a new term has been coined, calling it mass incarceration, but it's all slavery. It is slavery. I've studied each and every last uh, constitution of the 50 so-called states of America, and the vast majority of them, probably 95% of them, have that same exception clause uh, in their constitution. And, and we've been lied to. And so when we talk about, when we talk about slavery, pre-1865, that's what we mean, pre-Civil War slavery. Because now we, we, you know, it's still the same old thing, but it's actually been made legal. It was not constitutionalized until after the Civil War. So slavery isn't, in fact, legal. You can, we can point to the exploitation of prison labor by the federal government, by the state government, and by these multinational corporations. And then we can even point to these multinational uh, uh, private prison corporations, which I'm now hearing are operating in Haiti and re-enslaving those people who fought for their independence a, a long time ago. And so, I, you know, part of educating ourselves is is that in, in pushing towards sovereignty. Right now, I just feel like a lot of people are 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 not acknowledging that many of our people are in enslaved right now. So imagine yourself as a black person pre eighteen sixty five, as a free black person uh, pre eighteen sixty five, like twelve years a slave. You know, so we who are not in greater confinement are actually, you know, the free black people while millions of our brothers and sisters and children are enslaved by this system. And, and I just really wanted to put that out there because it is a battle that, that has not uh, been won and we've been lied to in, in, into believing that slavery was abolished by Steven Spielberg and other Hollywood producers and, and, and by the public education system. And, and on the sovereignty issue, in my study of past abolitionists, and I can't recall his name because I just learned about him two weeks ago, 
um, but we talked about them on our program, New Abolitionist Radio. But one of the things our people was doing after 1865 was moving to a couple of states. I think Missouri might have been one. I'm sure Kansas was one. And they were buying up land to establish you know, a sovereign state for black people. And they ran into some problems because white people didn't want to sell the land at, you know, fair market prices, and they tried to gouge them. So that idea fell through. And before I even came into that knowledge, I had been talking with other people about, you know, the four-state solution. State constitutions have language in them that says that you can amend about the people, can amend and abolish their government, and I'm talking about the state government, all right? And so if you, if enough black people, let's say, move into Georgia, so to speak, to where we are the predominant population, well, we could pretty much rewrite that constitution however we saw a fit, you know? But, of course, we should be armed because I'm sure, you know, uh, white people throughout the rest of the nation ain't going to like what we're doing, and they're going to come tr- come in in Rosewood, so we had to be, you know, uh, uh, wary of that and, and protect ourselves. But thank you, more. Scotty, 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 Scotty. There, yeah. Ain't there there's good white folks out there, right? <laughs> Say what? <laughs> no, I'm just joking with you, Scotty. I know you is. I know you <laughs> is. But I agree with what was said earlier, you know, and I just read a comment by somebody a couple of days ago. If you put all the good white people in a barrel, you know what I'm saying? If you, you know, tally them all up, their percentage is so insignificant that it ain't making no difference or impact on racism, white supremacy. So thank you. Scotty, thank you for your call. (laughs) Brother Ezra, he he had a lot to say there, and he was right on point. Yes. You know, and the 13th Amendment, uh, yes, the, the insult occurs, one, as I mentioned, the 43 words. The second is that it says that slavery can exist as a punishment for a crime. So in many ways, it did not abolish slavery. But, you know, whether you're talking about Ferguson, uh, whether you're talking about uh, the racist emails that came from the woman from Sony, and I wrote an article about this a couple weeks ago, uh, there's a sociology attached to those issues that I would argue date right back directly rooted in the fact that the relationship has always been unprincipled and it is typified in that 13th Amendment. So much so that that language could exist as it does today in 2015, and no one challenges it. And we have, I don't know how many thousand black attorneys, and even a black attorney general, and we become, act like we're puzzled as to why things racially are the way that they are today. And if you want to deal with racism, the crux of racism and the the sources of racism, I don't think that you can overlook the language of the 13th Amendment. And I don't think you can overlook a lot of the other influences that date back to that 1860s period that still have ramifications today that people deal with 
the symptoms and the outgrowth of those influences, but not directly with the source of those issues itself. Uh, Brother Ralph, I know your, your time is winding down. I know you want to squeeze in. Brother Ralph? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I wanted to sum up both guests. And how you doing, uh, Brother Ezra? Um, I, you know, I've been reading a couple of books lately. Uh, one is Destroy This Temple by Ovia uh, Agbuna. And another one was uh, Message to the Black Man by Elijah Muhammad. And I'm going to tell you something. Exactly what you're talking about exactly what the first guest was talking about as far as reparation, being sovereign, doing for self. Man, it's all out there. Um, you know, I'm going to read you just this one little quote, you know, that can sum up the 13th Amendment and all that because I don't look for um, laws to be enforced by lawless people. You know, they make these laws, but they don't abide by them. And it says, we must give up trying to live in peace with the people whom they have spent 400. Uh, it says, we must give up trying to live in peace with the people whom we have spent 400 years without peace. Even today, they stand ready to slaughter you just because they hate you. Now, this man told us this back in the 60s. And we're still looking for all these other, uh, um, you know, I, you know, it's just hard for me to, like, just listen to things when it's already been put out there, elementary, what we're facing. I'm seeing the propaganda come our way right now, demonizing us all over this country. So it'd be easy for these so-called people that other people call police officers to slaughter us out in the street by determining us as animals and everything else. So... Uh, it's hard to think sovereign because sovereign, in my opinion, means you're a king or a queen or you, you're ruling yourself. But it's hard to be sovereign under oppression. So I'm, I'm looking at what Elijah Muhammad basically said. Look, if you hate us so much, because it's number four on the back of every final call that was ever written, number four states, give us our own land. And as far as the reparations, give us the stuff that we need to set up our own land since we can't live in peace with you. Until those things happening, we'd be here the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years talking the same thing. This man was dead on point. A lot of stuff I'm reading in this book, he was dead on point 50-something years ago. So, uh, you know, I'm listening to the conversation. I do believe physically we have to be sovereign, you know. Physically, and I know you. I know what you're saying. Also, we have to get that mindset first. And he, and you know, even with Elijah Muhammad, he talked about putting people in Congress that would do right, do justice by us. We don't even do that no more. Whoever serves fried chicken at the church gets elected. So you know, I, I hear what you're saying, brother. I haven't had a chance to read either one of your books. I like what you're saying you got to think sovereign first in order to you know right it's a thought process it's a thought process but right. i believe that you have to have that you have to have you have to have and, right you have to have it and it cannot be tainted but i think after that thought 
need some action. You know what I mean? And and that and because I'm I'm me and Elliot was talking earlier, and I and I sort of followed the conversation. I was talking about other sovereign nations because this country we living in is just pure d wicked. I mean, anytime you can slaughter a teenager out in the street, and then you wear armbands saying "I am Darren Wilson," this is a wicked, evil nation. So. You know, I understand what you're saying, brother, but right now we're facing some perilous times. So, you know, um, I appreciate the uh, conversation tonight, uh, and I understand we have to have a thought process. But behind every thought, if action don't come, then it's still just a thought. So I'm just going to leave it off with that because I know where, you know, the show is uh, running down. Brother Ezra? Yes, sir. Before you leave this evening, and uh, we're winding down, we're coming up on nine. In fact, we're at the nine o'clock hour, but uh, we got a couple of more minutes. I, I want to mention two things to you before you go. You know, when things happen uh, here, whether it makes new national news or whatever, I always put a different uh, or look at it differently or with a different perspective. Two things I want to mention to you: the a couple of weeks ago, uh, Obama mentioned about uh, normalizing relations with Cuba because the embargo, the sanctions that was issued over 50 years, 60 years ago, something that hasn't been working. But we see that uh, there's a large uh, African population or conscious population in Cuba uh, Asada Shakur and others have have lived there a number of years. If the United States is normalizing "quote unquote" relations with Cuba, in your eyes, is that an avenue for conscious Black people to de- not only develop? I, you know, I don't care about how the United States is looking at it. That's a different perspective than what I'm talking about. Is it time for us to use that avenue to develop relations with our people there? One, because being that they have been ostracized from dealing with the United States, they have developed serious relations with the continent. We can see that over the years. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. is it time for us to use that avenue with relations with Cuba and our brothers and sisters there to develop closer relationships on an international basis with other black folks? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, historically... Ever since the mid-1700s, people from America, enslaved Africans who escaped and went to Florida, uh, have gone to Cuba. There's a history that's basically unknown about the relationship of that land, Cuba, and African people. So, you know, uh, in, in one answer to your question, we've always had relations with that particular landmass okay. uh, uh, of Cuba. Uh, it's inevitable that the relationship between America and Cuba will, will normalize, you know, at, at, at some point. Uh, the, the question being, you know, from a state standpoint of America, you know, to what end or what benefit it would, it will serve uh, African people, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, but, hey, uh, um, I'm saying Haiti. Cuba has always been a refuge for Africans who uh, 
left these shores. Uh, one African uh, who was Afro-Spaniard, Francisco Menendez, who operated a fort, a garrison, uh, in northern Florida uh, in the uh, early 1700s, uh, ultimately went to Cuba. So there's a long, a long history. And, uh, you know, time will tell what what the relationship will will will, will be like uh you know because the US government and its policies that is going to supersede everything and you know i believe that while uh fidel castro is is still alive um the normalizing of, of that relationship will will never occur yeah that's why i was that's why i kind of preface it by saying that uh you know i think that we can or looking at it from our perspective, we should look at it from a different perspective than uh, maybe this country as far as their relations with with the island. But I'm glad that you put yes, the spin on it that you did. Been. Okay. If you if you study the history, it always it's, there's always been a special relationship between Africans who were enslaved who escaped into Florida and wanted to get to Cuba. Uh, that relationship has has always existed. I can't remember the brother's name, but uh, there's a book out now. Someone just published a book about uh, Cuba and Africa and escaped Africans who uh, fled out of America. And one other thing before we wind the conversation up, uh, Brother Ezra, the, um, <laughs> we see here that the, the, the end of the year, mm-hmm. leading into this State of the Union, that Obama made mention that he's going to propose uh, free um, uh, community uh, college. Community, yeah, community college. For two years, yeah, yeah. free community college. Now, again, I'm looking at it from another perspective. We've seen that before when he was running, that uh, several black groups approached him and wanted to know his feelings on reparation. He was totally against it. But we see here in the last. Uh, two years of his uh, lame duck, uh, duck administration that he's proposing a uh, free community college for two years. That lets conscious people know, number one, this country can give reparations to African people that have been decimated by this system of white supremacy since we've been here, if they choose to. And number two, he could have proposed that also. Under the He didn't have to, have to call it reparations. He could have put that out there just like he put that statement out there about free community college for everybody. I don't think everybody. We look at the wealth gap between whites and blacks in this country that have expanded in his administration. We can see that everybody don't need community college or or universities at all, especially free. But black folks need community college, regular college, technical schools, a lot of different things. Those things can be offered. We've seen through that offer made or the proposal, and you know it's going to come up during that State of the Union, that these things can be done if this country chooses to. So it's just a little mental scorecard that we can use or or put in our uh, our memory bank moving forward. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things I write about in porn sovereignty is developmental reparations, and I say that in the sense that, yes, it's reparations, but... Yes, it also develops America because not just community education, 
I wrote that African people should be allowed to receive education up to a Ph.D. level, providing their grades are up to par, that there should be no barrier, that that should be one of the compensating factors that should exist uh, at least for 50 years, which would give at least two generations of black families the, the opportunity to have people educated to that extent, which would then uh, shift the uh, uh, forces of what people are mired in poverty, that force, those forces of poverty, and shift it over to having uh, people who would be educated to that extent, which would uh, in many ways alleviate those cycles of poverty that seemingly, you know, uh, have been stubborn since 1865. Brother Ezra, I want to thank you for being with us. Thank you for your work. The door is always open to you. Yeah, don't be a stranger now. Just come on in, just just like you're paying a visit. Ring the bell, and uh, I'll look out Appreciate the it. door and, and and open the door, and you can come on in. Appreciate it. Yeah. I have a new yeah. book coming out in the next couple of weeks. Oh, okay. Uh, the Sovereign Psyche. So I'll make sure oh, you that's get the, your copy that's the third book in the trilogy, huh? Yes, sir. Great, great. I, yeah, I'd love for you to come on, uh, come on the program and kind of preview things, and we'll talk about it. Absolutely. I want to thank you for being with us this evening. Thank you so much. We'll be right back uh, to wind up the program. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. <laughs> Everybody is here. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening. Sundays, 7 p.m., with your hosts, Elliot and Rick. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening, and uh, I want to thank our guests this evening. 
author, lecturer, and activist, Dr. Ray Winbush, was with us in the first hour of the program, director of the Institute of Urban Research at Morgan State University, and uh, always been on the forefront of reparations for our people. In the second half hour, associate professor of political science at Delaware State University, Brother Ezra Alaron, was with us. Two critically acclaimed books dealing with sovereignty, and as you heard, he has another one being released in two weeks. Brother Reg, Brother Ralph. Yes, sir, Brother Elliot. I wanted to ask you something, man. Uh, how proud of you? Uh, were you very proud of Eric Holder running over there to France to get those uh, mean terrorists? <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> no, I mean, you had to be proud of uh, Eric Holder. You know, he, you know, uh, He's he's gonna he's gonna show France that we stand hand in hand with them in their freedom of hateful speech against people and their belief system. So, uh, hey Ralph, yep. I know I know he's very disappointed. He stopped going to those churches to to, to select those politicians. He said he ain't like their fire chicken recipe, so he stopped going. <laughs> who? Who, who is that, Eric Holder? You. Yeah, you. right. I heard Ralph talking about some. What you say about fried chicken? Fried yeah, chicken and you politicians. Know the way our local politicians in Philly, they just go to these churches and serve fried chicken to get votes. That's about it. You know, oh, get your tax money. Throw a block party here and there. Elliot said, Elliot said he don't remember the recipe. The recipe changed. That's so how you stop going. Yeah, yeah, okay. Boy, you, and, you and, and you know true. what? You better watch out for this uh, uh, free co- uh, community college thing too, because the last thing he told he told us about it was going to be affordable health care, and if you've seen the prices of that, <laughs> it's nowhere near affordable. So you better look at that word free. And if, if anything, community college tuitions are going to be going up sky high. <laughs> you just got to watch the lies this that comes out of this guy's mouth, man. Free I don't. D-U-M at the end with a B. <laughs> you got to watch it. I, listen, I want to thank everybody for participating in the program this, this evening. Lively discussion as always. Uh, you know what? And another thing, too, Brother Ralph, that uh, the book destroyed his temple. Yes, sir. Good boy. Uh, I think uh, his son, Obey Bona Jr., might be joining us next week. Good, uh, I, was, good. I was talking to him earlier in the week, and he wants to get back on, so uh, we'll make some type of arrangements. And he could probably uh, fill us in about that Cuba, you know, a lot of things about Cuba also. Almost oh, definitely, because he's uh, yeah. involved with Zimbabwe and Cuba. So, uh, And he wanted me to tell Reg that uh, uh, the group has another album coming out another week or two. Okay. Thank you, my so, brother. I want to thank everybody for participating in the program this evening. Lively discussion as always. And we'll be back next week, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. I have to take care of We've got to do something, yeah, to save the children. Such a small part of 
got to do something, yeah, to save the children. Soon it will be their chance to try and save the world. Children to save the children. 